Uh, We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. If you would turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. We're continuing a series in the book of Hebrews. This is the 11th part in this series, and uh, and so we're going to continue in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Read along with me, if you would, or follow along with me as I read from Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you, you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. God, you have precious truth for us in your word. We ask that you would instruct us by your Holy Spirit during this time to receive that truth. that our hearts and our minds and our lives would be changed by what you have for us in Hebrews 10 this morning. Father, give us strength through your spirit to endure in the race of faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, endurance races fascinate me. I understand like the 100-meter dash It's fun to see the fastest men in the world going for it. But for me, there's something about human beings being pushed to their absolute limits over a long period of time that I love to watch. Not so much to participate, but to watch. Now, I did run cross-country, and I did distance events in track and field as a high schooler. So maybe it's that I understand a little bit of the mental and physical anguish that sets in over the course of a long race. But I love watching this. 
like peak athletic human beings cracking because the race is so hard and so long. And my recent obsession, my wife can attest to this, has been with what I consider the ultimate endurance sport, the Tour de France. It's been going on for the last three weeks. This is a three-week, 21-stage, 2,082-mile bike ride. I don't know if I could drive 2,082 miles, much less ride that on my bike. And often the winner of this three-week race is decided by a couple minutes or less. It's really close, and so everything matters. And perhaps what fascinates me the most about the Tour de France is, of course, for many, winning is the goal. They want to be on the top of the podium at the end of that three weeks. But for most, just finishing is a major accomplishment. Over the course of these three weeks, these specialized world-class athletes retire from the race for a whole variety of reasons. Teams have to protect against colds and flus and all different viruses that could affect their riders. There's these tightly packed roads with hundreds of riders on them and there's spectators with no barriers and crashes happen all the time. Certain conduct during a day's ride could get a rider disqualified. There are lots of things that could cause someone not to finish the race. And rarely, but it does happen, there are those who simply throw in the towel. They can't finish. Although there will only be one rider who cruises into Paris on the last day of the tour and they've got the yellow jersey on their back stating that they've won the race, there are a hundred others or more who are simply satisfied, I finished, I made it, I'm in one piece, I'm going across the finish line. They had the endurance to finish what they started. Not many can say that. Well, the Christians being addressed in Hebrews 10 this morning have need of endurance in the Christian life. This is our 11th entry in this series in the book of Hebrews, and we've demonstrated again and again in this, in this book the truth that Jesus is superior. It's in the title of this series. He's superior to angels, to prophets, to Moses, to priests, to sacrifices. But we've also shown that the author of Hebrews is highlighting Jesus' superiority to these things for a specific reason. He's warning the recipients of this letter that failure to believe in Jesus' superiority has terrible consequences. And they need endurance to continue to believe that Jesus is better. In Hebrews 10, 19 to 39, the author of this letter finally makes a pointed statement about what is ailing these Christians. They're thinking that the Christian life is a lap around the block on a beach cruiser, and it's not. It is a long drawn-out, grueling, hazard-filled race. And endurance is needed to make it to the finish. They need to be reminded of that. And I believe as Christians in St. Pete, Florida in 2019, we need this reminder too. The Christian life is a long, drawn-out, hard, hazard-filled, grueling race. Brothers and sisters, we need the message of this text for our lives. We have need of endurance. So this morning, we're going to look at this encouragement to endure under three headings. First, endure because of Jesus' priesthood in verses 19 to 25. Second, endure because of fear of judgment in verses 26 to 31. And finally, endure because of a better possession in verses 32 to 39. Let's look again at Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Endure because of Jesus' priesthood. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, 
that is through his flesh. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, the author of Hebrews begins this encouragement to endure in this section by repeating some truths that he's gone over quite a bit in the book of Hebrews. Two truths in particular. Those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus are now able to enter into the presence of God with confidence because of the blood of Jesus spilled for them. The sacrifice of Jesus for them allows them to enter into God's presence with confidence. But also this second truth, those who've repented of their sins and believed in Jesus now have Jesus as their great high priest interceding for them before God. And he highlights these two truths here, not to bring them up again, but because we can take them as a given based on what he's argued so far in the last six chapters of the book of Hebrews. I'd encourage if you need to be, be built up in these two areas of Jesus' sacrifice, And of Jesus' priesthood, you can go back and read the last six chapters of the book of Hebrews. It's this thorough working through. It's not a doctrinal nitpick that this author is going through. This is encouragement for endurance in life. Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' priesthood will give them the faith and hope and love that they need to make it to the finish line of the race of the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, this is a challenge to us seemingly nitpicky, technical, doctrinal truth, which is revealed for us in God's word, is absolutely vital for life. We desperately need it. Our ability to live and to endure as God's people in God's world until God's son returns depends on us understanding and believing the truths in God's word. The first challenge to endure which the author of Hebrews makes based on the sacrifice and priesthood of Jesus is focused on faith. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' priesthood are not just things that have happened or are happening somewhere with no effect on you as a Christian. When you repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus, these are things that have happened and are happening for you before God. Jesus is working these things out for you. And it has great effect. He reminds his recipients, he reminds us that Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' priesthood actually accomplishes things for God's people. Unlike Old Testament sacrifices, your conscience is actually cleansed by the blood of Jesus such that you no longer need to worry about how you're going to pay for your sins. I love Megan's testimony earlier. She was wrestling with that truth. She does not need to worry about payment for her sins any longer. Jesus has paid that. And he's done that for you as well. Unlike what Old Testament priests could provide, The washing with water depicted in baptism represents actual forgiveness for you provided by Jesus and actual freedom for you from the power of sin. You are actually set free by his priesthood. The Old Testament priest couldn't do that. 
For these first century professing Christians, knowing and believing these things should result in full assurance of faith. It should give them the fuel that they need to endure in the long, grueling, difficult race of the Christian life. So he encourages them again to draw near to God. So brothers and sisters, do you draw near to God in faith? Or do you keep him at arm's length with anxieties and doubts and fears? Contrary to some modern depictions of the Christian life, assurance of faith is a good goal. And it's the ordinary expectation of God's people in the world. You can have assurance of your faith. This doesn't mean that God's people will never be plagued by doubts or have seasons lacking assurance, but there's this seeming encouragement of doubts in Christianity that I just don't get. I don't understand. We should be spurring one another on to full assurance of faith. This encouragement of doubt has caused many Christians to look like the language of James 1.6, a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. But make no mistake, our assurance doesn't rest on our ability and our strength to cling to Jesus. Our assurance rests on the objective, historical accomplishment of our ability to draw near to God through the sacrifice of Jesus, applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Do you get that? Jesus actually did something in history. He's actually doing something for you right now at the right hand of God in heaven, and it's being applied to your heart supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Something actually happens when you turn from your sin and believe in these things. And it spurs you on to endure in the Christian faith. The second challenge in this section to endure based on the sacrifice and priesthood of Jesus is focused on hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now, don't jump on this real quick and say, aha, I knew I had to do something. Hold fast. That's on me. Look at what the author says next. He who promised is faithful. One way to summarize the message of Hebrews is how we have. Jesus is superior. Really good shorthand. But another way to summarize the message of this book is, he who promised is faithful. We have seen dozens of quotations and allusions and references to the Old Testament scriptures written hundreds or thousands of years before this time. And the author has demonstrated time and time and time and time again what God promises he actually does. He is faithful to his word. God's people can endure because of the hope provided by God's faithfulness to his promises. Our hope is not in vain. He has done what he said he would do, and he will do what he has said he will do. Brothers and sisters, are you lacking hope right now? Maybe you're experiencing a period of time where God seemingly has gone silent in your life. Maybe your struggles have gone on for so long that you've given up expecting any sort of change. Maybe your hope is starting to flag and you're believing that maybe God can't do what he said. Maybe he doesn't want to. As difficult as this is to say, because I know the dark hole of hopelessness and I don't want to minimize what anybody might be walking through, Hebrews 10 invites you to have some perspective. God and his word over thousands of years, 
in the most improbable and unlikely of circumstances, he has never failed to keep his promises. He does it again and again and again and again. Brothers and sisters, your hope is God will keep his promises to you too. This is truth to cling to when all hope seems lost. This is truth to help us endure on the long, grueling, hazard-filled race of the Christian life. God keeps his word, and he will keep his word to you, too. The third challenge in this section to endure based on the sacrifice and priesthood of Jesus is focused on love. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. My own very simple translation of verse 25 that tells us how to do that is this. Go to church, encourage somebody, be encouraged by somebody, and do it until Jesus comes back. That's the instruction of this verse. This is Christian living 101. But I'm afraid it's very commonplace that Christians start to drift from the Lord in this very area. I don't know how many times at various youth rallies growing up, I heard someone trying to undermine hypocrisy and works righteousness who said something like this, going to church doesn't make you a good Christian. True as that may be, a Christian who wants to endure in the Christian life, in faith, hope, and love, needs to be at church. Need to be here. In my ministry experience, neglecting to meet with other Christians on a regular basis is the most common exit route from the Christian life. Easily the most common exit route from the Christian life. Rarely is there a dramatic deconversion event where somebody is fully engaged in the Christian life one day and then they have a conversation with somebody and they're like, nope, walking away from the Lord. This isn't for me. That really doesn't happen. It is a slow drift from Christian community a slow decrease in faith, hope, and love. And it's because you're cutting yourself off from this God-provided community who is supposed to spur you on and encourage you and show you love and point you to good works. Church attendance and involvement in Christian community isn't a good metric of endurance in the Christian life because you're gonna get a perfect attendance certificate at the end of the year. It's not why we show up to church. It's not why you should go to community group. Church attendance and involvement in community group is a good metric of endurance in the Christian life because it probably means that you've realized you need other people to spur you on in the race of faith. And they need you too. You've come to that realization that you can't do it on your own. You need others surrounding you. Have I said that I'm glad you're here this morning? You showed up. You're here. That's good. Sunday gatherings are a wonderful time for worship, for encouraging one another. It's good that you are here. Here at Gulf Coast, another focused opportunity for you to be spurred on to love and good works and to spur others on is our weekly community groups. Full disclosure, I'm not a small group person. And this is ironic because I lead a community group. So put that together. But I can attest that the people in my community group regularly spur me on to love and good works. As they share how they're applying Christian truth to their lives, how they're working that out in their relationships, at their work, in their families, I am spurred on. I want to live like that too. And I hope I'm spurring them on as well. 
I need them and they need me so that we can endure in love and good works until the day of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what keeps you from Christian community? Don't neglect meeting together. This is Christian Living 101. First, we're encouraged to endure because of Jesus' priesthood. Second, we're encouraged to endure because of fear of judgment. Look again at verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, the sacrifice and priesthood of Jesus is one encouragement to endure in the race of the Christian life. But this prospect of judgment is another encouragement to endure in the Christian life. Now, lots of ink has been spilled about what the author means by go on sinning deliberately in verse 26. What type of sins fall into that category? Usually that's where discussions of this passage kind of get bogged down. What's he talking about here? Well, if you continue to read to verse 29, this passage clearly defines what types of sin he's talking about here. The one who has spurned the Son of God has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, has outraged the spirit of grace. In short, this person has rejected Jesus, turned up their nose at Jesus' sacrifice, and quenched the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. This person has committed apostasy. They've turned away from the Christian faith. F.F. Bruce has a great way of saying this, to have received the knowledge of the truth and then reject it, is to give up the only way of salvation. Rejecting this only way of salvation results in a terrible chain reaction of events for a person such as this. Their rejection of Jesus' sacrifice means that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you've been with us in this series in Hebrews 10, you remember this language from Hebrews 10, verse 18. There's this ironic turn here Because in verse 18, for those who have accepted Jesus' sacrifice, there is no longer any offering for sin because Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. They don't need to keep going back to the temple and offering sheep and bulls and goats because Jesus has done it. But in verse 26, for those who reject Jesus' sacrifice, there's no longer any sacrifice for sins because his is the only one who could save them. And they've rejected it. This lack of a sacrifice for sins can only result in expectation of judgment. And the author highlights the inevitability of judgment in a chilling reversal of verse 23. Those who endure can hold fast the confession of their hope because God has proven again and again in history that he fulfills his promises. But for those who deliberately sin, they can expect judgment and fire because God has proven again and again in history that he judges his adversaries. He's shown us that. He will not allow rebellion against him to go unchecked forever. 
If God prescribed capital punishment for people for breaking certain aspects of the old covenant, what do you expect for someone who sees Jesus, understands what he's done and said, no, I think I can do this on my own. I'm good. Thanks though, God. What do you expect? Judgment. And the terrifying reality, and I don't want to make light of this, the terrifying reality is that while we may gravitate toward God as father or deliverer or healer or provider, clearly in scripture, God is also a judge. And he's a judge that we will one day have to stand before. What makes these words especially appropriate for us as a gathered community of believers this morning is what F.F. Bruce has to say about these. These words have no doubt been used frequently as a warning to the ungodly of what lies in store for them unless they amend their ways. But their primary application is to the people of God. You see that? He's writing to Christians. The Lord will judge his people. This is to us. Brothers and sisters, this is a challenge for us to stop running through a list of people in our minds who need to be warned right now. Oh boy, they don't know judgment's coming. I need to tell them. We do need to warn others of coming judgment in truth and love. But this morning in this passage, we need to look ourselves in the mirror and say, do I realize that judgment is coming? Do I understand that? That God will judge his people. And the sacrifice and priesthood of Jesus are the only guarantees for us that that judgment of God on us will be a positive one. It's the only way. So if we spurn the Son of God or consider the blood of the covenant unholy or quench the Holy Spirit, we can only expect judgment. So how does God as judge spur us on to endure in the race of the Christian life? I don't want to say this flippantly, but it should terrify us. In a very real sense, we should be scared to give up the race. We should be scared to abandon the race of faith. Because judgment is the only expectation for those who don't endure. Of course, fear is not the only motivation for living the Christian life, but it is a motivation for living the Christian life. Now, it probably wouldn't be much help to simply say, are you doing the very bare minimum in your life so that it wouldn't be said of you that you spurn the Son of God? You profane the blood of the covenant. You outrage the spirit of grace. Are you doing the very bare minimum so that's not said of you? Probably wouldn't be helpful. We want better things said of us as we seek to endure in the Christian life. So perhaps the better question is, do you endure by exalting the Son of God to his proper place in your life? If you need a litmus test for what it looks like to exalt the Son of God, look no further than this book of Hebrews that we've been walking through. The book of Hebrews is an extended argument for the superiority of Jesus over everything. You may not struggle in the same ways that these early recipients did in the first century, but if you're anything like me, you struggle in similar ways. Do you exalt the Son of God in your life over every other source of information about the world and how to think and how to live? We are getting constant input telling us these things. Do you hold Jesus as the only source of information that you will rely on over against any others? Do you exalt the Son of God in your life as the only source of true rest that you will find 
Or do you look for rest elsewhere? A certain level of success, leisure, getting to a part of your day where you can let your hair down, that is not where true rest is found. True rest is only found in Jesus. You exalt the Son of God in your life as the only source of mediation between you and God, or do you look for someone else to mediate for you? Someone else to tell you, no, you're good. You're doing okay. Yourself telling you, that's scary. No, I'm good. I'm okay. Or do you realize the only true source of mediation for you, the only person who can tell you you are okay with God is Jesus? Let's also ask, do you endure by treating the blood of the covenant as holy? As Todd challenged us a few weeks ago, do you refuse to look to anything else to make you holy in God's eyes? We sang nothing but the blood this morning. So encouraged by that song, again and again and again, we look for righteousness and forgiveness and healing nowhere else. It's the blood of Jesus. And when we start to look somewhere else for those things, we're profaning the blood of Jesus. Refuse to look elsewhere. Do you endure by honoring the spirit of grace and recognizing his work in your life and the lives of others? Any benefits that we've mentioned this morning that we have through turning from our sins and believing in Jesus are applied to us powerfully by God's Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Do you recognize the Spirit's work in your own life? Do you encourage the Spirit's work in your own life? Do you ask him to expose sins in you? Do you ask him to gift you so that you can encourage other people like we've talked about this morning? Or do you quench his work in your life? Do you encourage that work of the Spirit in the lives of others as well? Stirring them up and spurring them on in the race. The author of Hebrews reminds us that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But for those who exalt the Son of God to his proper place, those who recognize their need for the covenant blood of Jesus to sprinkle their consciences clean, those who honor the spirit of grace and recognize his work in their lives, in short, those who endure in the race of the Christian life, well, they can be encouraged. It is a marvelous thing to fall into the arms of a loving Father in heaven. That's what we look forward to if we endure in the race of the Christian life. We will be counted blessed to behold him face to face and to worship him for eternity. That's what we look forward to. And so as much as this alternative is terrifying, the prospect of seeing God and being embraced by him as his children should speed us along in the journey not stopping to look around at the flowers. We should be reinvigorated to endure until the day of the Lord Jesus. We're encouraged to endure because of Jesus' priesthood. We're encouraged to endure because of fear of judgment. And finally, we're encouraged to endure because of better possessions. Look at verse 32 again. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. 
You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. So that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. For us as modern readers of the book of Hebrews, this section has to contain the most shocking revelation in the whole book. We've had hints throughout the book of Hebrews of the character and nature of the recipients of this letter. We know that the recipients of this letter have professed faith in Jesus. We know that this is a group of people who were formerly Jews. We know that the author sees them as being in danger of abandoning their profession of faith. But in spite of passages like Hebrews 6, 1 through 12, which describes these people by all observable metrics as Christians, we're still tempted to think, well, the reason that these believers are in danger of falling away must be they were never bought in in the first place. That's got to be it. I'm sure there are plenty of signs that these were nominal believers. These are the people, they only show up for the church softball games. They might come on Christmas Eve. I've got nothing to worry about because I'm way more committed than they were. Well, Hebrews 10, 32 to 39 throws that out the window. The recipients of this letter aren't hearing for the first time that it's okay to suffer persecution and loss for Jesus because he holds out better possessions for you. They have previously been so committed to the Christian life, they actually suffered reproach and affliction and suffering and caring for those in prison and the plundering of their property, and they were perfectly willing to undergo those things for a time. They were perfectly willing to say, we've got better possessions, we've got abiding possessions. Sounds as if they were a bit more involved in the church softball team. These are the people who are in danger of abandoning their faith, These are the people who might not endure to the finish line of the race of the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, as we read this in 2019 in St. Pete, Florida, the author of Hebrews by the Holy Spirit is crying out to us, wake up. If you think you can't drift from the Christian life and abandon the faith, you've got another thing coming. You can. If the people being described in this book are in danger of abandoning their faith, these warnings are absolutely for us too. If you don't think this is an urgent message, Jerry and I were talking in the office before the service this morning and he was relating to me another well-known pastor who has not only fallen from grace but has simply stated, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. A well-known pastor. Great track record. Suffered for the faith. These warnings are absolutely for us. When we compare the type of community that's being described here in verses 32 to 34, these professing Christians sticking to one another through suffering and persecution and plundering and imprisonment with what we see in verse 25, these same Christians some period of time later, they don't even want to meet together anymore, much less see each other in prison. We have to ask ourselves, how did that happen? And could that happen to me? 
we have to ask that question. Could I be giving generously to Gulf Coast and other Christian organizations? Could I be fully committed to my community group? Could I be sharing the gospel with my coworkers, volunteering in the children's ministry, eagerly studying my Bible on a daily basis, and then end up like these people who don't even want to be around other Christians and who have spurned the sacrifice of Jesus? Could that be me? The book of Hebrews says yes. As someone who has grown up in the church, has a track record of living the Christian life, just finished seminary, I'm going to be ordained next week, this is terrifying to me. I hope it's terrifying to you too. We talked about assurance of faith earlier. I'm fully convinced that God provides assurance for his people through the application of the work of Jesus to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I'm further convinced that the Lord will never lose any of his sheep that are truly his. But assurance of faith does not mean presumption and arrogance and recklessness that I could never fall. I certainly could. And you could too. This passage is a wake-up call for us. In this section, the author of Hebrews doesn't challenge the recipients of this letter to endure by simply warning them of judgment again. He does again mention the coming day of the Lord. In fact, the title for Jesus, which he highlights in this section, is the coming one. But he reminds his audience and he reminds us that the coming of the day of the Lord is not solely a day of judgment. It's also a day of unspeakable reward for those who endure to the end. God's people will have better and abiding possessions, which government persecution and imprisonments in time and decay cannot take. For those who endure to the end, they will receive what is promised because the coming one is coming. He will not delay and he has given his promise that he rewards those who endure to the end. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded regularly that the current way of the world and the current trajectory of the world will not continue on unchecked forever. We need the reminder that the coming one is coming and he will not delay because everything around us and our culture screams, this is all there is. This is it. The good news of our culture is squeeze the most you can out of life because the only change that's going to take place for you is that you will one day die and your matter will be absorbed back into the universe. So make the most of your time while you can. That's the good news of our culture. That is not the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is the coming one is coming and he will not delay. For those who have endured to the end by the power of his Holy Spirit, they will receive better and abiding possessions than anything that could be attained in this life. They will worship the triune God on a newly remade earth with God's people forever. And there will be no sin and no injustice and no pain and no sickness and no tears for eternity. That's good news. That's what's being held out to us in God's word. The author of Hebrews is calling the recipients of this letter to endure because this is what awaits them. And this is what awaits us if we endure in the race of faith. We were reminded yesterday 
at Peggy Corb's funeral of what it looks like to endure in the race of faith. And we're reminded this morning of what Peggy's hope is and what our hope is for her as Christians. God will keep his promises to her. And he will keep his promises to us if we endure in the race of faith. Unfortunately, this truth of better and abiding possessions, this truth is easy to forget. It's heartbreaking to see someone abandon the Tour de France because of something completely out of their control. Sickness, injury, freak accident, those things happen. You hate it for these people who have trained so long. But it's maddening to see someone abandon the Tour for petty reasons, and this does happen. I don't want to make this rider into a villain, but the world time trial champion, I imagine he's good at time trials, abandoned this year's tour during stage 12 of the 21-stage race. He wasn't sick. He wasn't weak. He was actually riding strong. He was in the breakaway. He was out in front of the peloton that day. He'd already been through so much. He had avoided crashes in the early hectic stages of the race. He survived the grueling Pyrenees Mountains. He was a week away from finishing the tour. Rumors are that turmoil within his team led him to abruptly stop his bike at a feeding station with 80 kilometers to go on the stage, lean his bike up against the team car, and walk off the course. No words. I can't speak for this man, what was going through his head, but I'd venture to guess that he needed to be reminded that the next day, stage 13, was the individual time trial, the stage of the race that he was the heavy favorite to win. He needed to be reminded that he was over halfway done with this race. Simply needed to draw strength and encouragement from his team to get through the remaining stages. He needed to be reminded of the incredible feeling it is to ride into Paris with massive crowds cheering you on because you finished, cruising down the Champs-Élysées to the finish line knowing that you had endured to the end. He needed somebody to remind him that. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you, the coming one is coming, and he will not delay. Maybe you're a new Christian. I want to challenge you. The race of the Christian life is long and hard and grueling and hazard-filled, but God has made promises to us. He's provided us with his Holy Spirit. He's provided us with his people to help us endure in the race of the Christian life. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Probably don't need to remind you that the race of the Christian life is long and grueling and difficult and hazard-filled. But you have need of endurance. You need to be spurred on that just because you've made it so far in the Christian life that you can now slacken the pace and go easy. Abandoning the race is a real option for all of us. It's a terrifying one. I want to encourage you to continue on in the race of faith. The author of Hebrews closes this section with a note of optimism. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, 
but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And I want to close with a note of optimism this morning by saying, I have faith that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. By God's grace, we will be those who endure to the end and receive the promises of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, both the stern warnings that we find here, but also the amazing amazing encouragement that we find as well. By your grace, would you allow us to endure in the Christian life, carry on to the finish line of the race? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.